Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. A word of warning, this episode contains details of sexual violence and sex trafficking, which some listeners may find disturbing. Trafficked as a young 19-year-old woman, Marky Dell had to survive in a life of being sold for sex. The fight within her never diminished, and one day Marky took a chance, running for her life and her freedom in 8-inch heels. Both a victim and a survivor, Marky is now living the life she deserves, and this is her story. Marky, thank you so much for coming on to my Second Chance podcast. I've been looking forward to talking to you because I've never spoken to anybody who has been through the the experiences that you've been through, and and that's just one side of your life. But let's set the scene. I'm I'm in windy, cold, wet London at the moment. You know, the weather here hasn't been great for a little while, but, you know, it is what it is. And we're coming out of lockdown through this COVID period. So I'm kind of looking forward to getting back out there. But right now I'm in my study in the spare room in my home. Where are you in the world right now? Right now I'm in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Uh, The weather is gorgeous. I was just watering my garden this morning and you know, walking my puppy. I'm just here in my dining room and we're still in lockdown. So just enjoying the time that I get to do what I want to do. So. And what what does lockdown mean in Canada at the moment? Is it full lockdown? Are you able to go out and about or not? No, right now it's full lockdown and only essential, like only essential services and items. So we can go to the grocery store, but we can only buy like they have um, taped things that aren't essential, like garbage bags or, you know, so it's very, very strict right now. So and and what about people that are working? Are they not able to go to their place of work? Are people restricted from going work? And how long are you expecting this lockdown to last? Most people work from home now. So, you know, any office, all the offices are kind of shut down. Basically, policemen, firemen, just the very essentials or people that work in grocery stores um, can go to work. And they just did another two weeks. So we'll find out in another two week time if they're going to extend the lockdown or if we're going to continue being at home. God, it's it's the bay of our conversations on a daily basis, isn't it? And how how are you coping with the whole lockdown period? How, how are you doing? Oh, up and down. Uh, for the most part, I see it as a blessing for me to do things that I've never done before, learn things that I've never learned. And um, but that's not to say that it's not difficult. You know, I miss my friends. I miss gatherings. You know, so for the most part, good. But I struggle just as anybody. Just tell me what you would be doing if you weren't in lockdown then. I mean, what would you be, apart from socialising and doing the things that make you smile and enjoy, your, what, what, what sort of things would you be doing that you're missing at the moment? 
well, I'm a trail runner and I'm a part of a trail team. So I, I was actually going to be doing an ultra marathon next or in a few weeks and that's canceled. So I would love to be running races right now, but I can't. And, you know, working, I, I have a business and I love, I'm in the beauty business. So just seeing my clients day to day, um, missing that for sure. So who is Marky then? I have a, a huge Canadian listening audience, if you like, and fan base on, on, based on my work. I, I've been invited over to Canada on a couple of occasions and, and was hoping to come and do some talking um, in Canada this year, but it's looking unlikely because of COVID. Who knows? H- how is the vaccination program going in, in Canada at the moment? Is that moving forward? Are you as far as we are here in the UK? I'm not too sure, but we are, um, most people have had their first vaccination and then we're going to be moving on to the second one. So I hear if when 60% of people get the vaccination, then they're going to open up other services that aren't essential. So we're working on that right now. Who's Marky then? Let's start with a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up. You say you're in, in, in Canada now in Hamilton. Is that where you grew up? Is that home? To, to Marky, tell me a little bit about, about your childhood, where you grew up and the sort of things you enjoyed or didn't enjoy when you were a kid. Yeah, I grew up in Hamilton. So I'm actually, I live like right around the corner from my childhood home. My family, I have two sisters, older sisters, and our family of five, we went to church every Sunday, Christian Baptist, and we, you know, never missed a Sunday. We were that kind of cookie cutter family, had a dog. Um, went to the cottage every summer and I was always a tomboy and looked like a boy. My hair was very short and not now. <laughs> <laughs> my, I think I fought really hard to go against that. So I was very athletic always. Uh, I was into karate, you know, having a name Marky, everyone just kind of assumes <laughs> that you are a boy. So I kind of took that role and, um, you know, I was into karate, swimming, skating, running, golf, you know, I was into all of that, um, water skiing and skiing and everything. And I was always very independent. I was always a very shy, socially awkward person, kid going into my teenage years, you know, high school was a nightmare for me. I did not fit in anywhere. And, um, it was, yeah, I was just someone that didn't get invited to parties. I was, um, people looked at me funny. I would, I didn't grow into my looks for years. And so growing up was, it was a struggle for me. My, my mom, she had her issues. <laughs> so it, growing up with her was very tough. And then she decided to leave our family when I was 16. So at the time that was great because I, I didn't want her around she was, she was very mean to, to me. So she had left, but I think that really kind of affected me um, looking back. So my dad was a single dad for a few years, raising three teenage daughters. And my family kind of fell apart uh, when I was 16. My mom left. My one sister got pregnant. She left. My other sister moved away, didn't want anything to do with us. And then my dad and I didn't get along for a long time just because I was a teenager and I would just fight with him for no reason. So I was very alone. How did you cope with that then? I mean, what was your your escape from the, the breakdown in the, the, the family home? And as a teenager, I suppose that's the real challenging time, isn't it? It's where we shape our thinking and, and behavior. What did that mean to you? Did you turn to drugs? Did you turn to partying? Did you just kind of cocoon in yourself? I mean, how did that affect marking? I turned to partying. I turned to boys. Um, I think that was the biggest thing is I was lacking so much attention. And the only way that I knew how to get attention was um, from sleeping with with guys. And you know, I knew it was, it was false. I knew they didn't care about me, but at the same time, that was the only type of care that I was getting from anybody. So it it just felt really good. That's interesting. And it was in your, your teens that you went through what what I've read about, and I've heard you speak on the TEDx talk, and and I would encourage people to to watch your TEDx talk, because it's so powerful. 
But what happened in your your early teens? So you've gone through this period, but then something quite dramatic happened. Talk me through what happened. Yeah. So when I was 19 years old, I was working at a bar and this coworker of mine became my friend instantly. Like she really paid attention to me and made me feel special. And she would say that I'm so pretty and um, that we have to hang out. And she was kind of the, she was the type of person that I wanted to be, you know, she wore designer clothes. She had this presence about her and she grew up in Toronto, right? The big city that I'd always dreamed of living in, you know, like condo life and have money and independence. And that was something that I really, really wanted from a young age. And she had it and she wanted to be my friend. And so I gravitated towards her and we formed this bond that to me, I was like, I have a best friend now. I have somebody. And we texted and she called me every single day. And then she invited me to her birthday. So it was like a week later. This all happened super fast. So about a week later, it was her birthday. And she said, don't worry about it. I'll come pick you up because I didn't have a car. So she said, I'll I'll come get you, drive you back up. And don't worry about anything. I have bottle service. I, you know, I've got dinner. Like, I just want you to come and meet my friends. And... So that was really exciting to me. At the same time, I was very, very nervous because I was socially awkward and she was different from the type of people that I used to hang out with, but I was excited. So the day rolls around and she's on her way to pick me up. And I had this horrible gut feeling, like talk about a red flag that I ignored, but I had this, I felt like I was going to throw up, but I pushed it to the side. And, um, she picked me up and we partied that night. I met her friends, not the type of people (laughs) they were thugs. Okay. I was a church girl and they were straight up thugs. So isn't that the attraction though? Isn't when, when, when you've been such a good girl and you, you, you move into this space where people are doing things that you never dreamed you'd be doing. It's part of the attraction. Oh yeah. I was like, this is so cool. You know? And they had, they had guns and they had drugs and they had, they all looked good. And you know, they're listening to different types of music than I was allowed to listen to. And it was just this whole experience that I was like, Oh my gosh, like, am I cool now? So we partied. I was very uncomfortable the whole time. Like they were passing me blunts. I didn't know what to do with it. I, you know, I'm drinking Hennessy, but I, I couldn't even drink like a cooler without <laughs> thinking it was gross. So. And for those who don't know, what's a blunt? Oh, it's like, um, like marijuana, like a big a fat, like a fatty. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, and then of course when I'm high, I'm like super extra, you know, awkward, but so we went to this club and, you know, we're, we're smoking at the bar and people are paying attention to me and it was fun. It was this, this different world that I had never been a part of. And I finally felt like I'm, you know, I'm fitting in somewhere and this could be where I belong. So we had fun. We went back to her place that night and slept, I slept over and When we woke up, it was like a flip just switched in her. Like she was like a mega bitch that morning. And I just pinned it as, oh, she's not a morning person, you know, like whatever. I'm just going to go home and that's that. So she was driving me home and then she parked in a strip club and she parked the car and she turned over and she looked at me. And she had like no soul in her eyes. Like she just looked like a demon looking at me. And she said, you owe me $600. And I was like, for what? And she said, I rented a car to come pick you up. I paid for bottle service. I got us an Uber to and from the club. I got club entry. And she starts listing everything that she has paid for that I was a part of. And she knew I didn't have the money. And so she reached in the back seat, threw a bag on my on my lap. And she says, everything you need is inside there. You're going to go in and you're going to dance and earn me that $600. And then we'll be square. And I don't remember what I said. 
But I just remember being like, no, like this isn't happening. And she, she told me that I know where your dad lives. I know you have a puppy and we will, will hurt them. Like she, she threatened to kill them. And I didn't take that threat lightly. Like I had met her friends and I knew I was in trouble. And so I, I fought back a little bit, but it was just understood that I'm going to, I'm going to do this. So I thought, okay, I'll make the money for her. And then no one has to know and we'll be good. And that'll be the end of it. Why didn't you, why didn't you, when you tried to fight back, and it's so interesting because the stuff that I read, a lot of what you've just explained is missing from the reports and bits and pieces that I've read about your story, which prompts the first question, which is, you know, why didn't you, you know, slap her in the face, step out of the car and go directly to the police? But you've explained why you didn't do that, because by setting the scene of meeting her friends who had guns and and were thugs, as you described it, it must have instilled in you a fear, which was that red flag, I suspect, that you knew you were walking into, but kind of were attracted to at the same time. So, but still answer the question for me, Marky, why didn't you take being the kind of church going girl that you was even though you were in search of some fun and acceptance why didn't you go directly to the police and say somebody's trying to force me into something I don't want to do I was scared and mostly I feel like I wanted to be accepted I think that I was so intimidated by her and and yet I still had this kind of respect for her and I didn't take stuff like that seriously like going to the police wasn't even a thought in my mind right I just thought like Throughout the process, I had thought about the police once or twice, but it would just be like, for what? You know, like nothing actually happened, right? Like maybe, maybe it is an empty threat. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I, I wanted to be liked so badly that I just wanted to comply. So. No, that's, it's, it's so interesting. I suppose lots of people (laughs) find themselves in a similar situation. So what was in the bag? She had two different stripper outfits, so kind of like bikinis, stripper heels, baby wipes. Um, they call it a cookie sheet. It's like a bandana where you put it on like the customer's lap so you don't, <laughs> you know, get dirty. Lotion, a razor. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, just the the essentials, gum for working in the strip club. And she, I asked her, she was just going to drop me off. I was like, okay, like, what do I do? I don't even know, like, what? So <laughs> she told me, okay, like, here's your ID. Because she had taken my ID without me even knowing the night before. She said, here's your ID. You're going to go right up to the manager desk, to the DJ, and sign yourself in and sign a form um, to work there. You might have an audition. You might not. And then go get changed and then go to the DJ, pick three songs that you want to dance to, pay the DJ fee. She gave me money for the DJ fee. And then she says, okay, and then I'm going to pick you up when they close. And, and that was it. And I walked in terrified, terrified. Like everyone's worst nightmare is to be naked in front of an audience. And this is not only being naked in front of an audience. This is dancing naked in front of an audience. I I was sick to my stomach. I I can't even describe it. How did you get through it? How did you get through that feeling, that that terrified experience? Wow, I don't know. I went to the bar. I went <laughs> So for- <laughs> I basically, I confided in some people. I didn't know what was like that anything wrong per se was happening. Because keep in mind, I still think she's my friend. I still think in some twisted way that I deserve, like I need to pay her back this money. I owe it to her. And so I was in the wrong. So I need to screw, like I need to correct what I screwed up and, and pay her back. And this is maybe the fastest way I can pay her back. So when I had a, like, basically I was talking to the manager and the manager was very excited that he had a new girl. So he called one of his friends Um, He came and took me in the back room and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. It's my first time. And he kind of walked me through etiquette in the strip club, what to do, how to deal with customers. 
And so he kind of helped a lot and he paid me for my time there. So that was kind of how I got through the first day. And then there were some really nice girls that worked there that kind of saw my fear and kind of comfort me, comforted me in some way, just by giving me like a little smile. And then I was drinking a lot. So that helped. (laughs) What happened when your so-called friend came to pick you up at at the end of the the night? But before you tell me that, what was the experience like? Because now you've been coached into what it is they're expecting of you that night. When you I don't know, got up onto a stage or went into a booth. Um, I don't frequent strip clubs that often at all, actually. Um, So (laughs) I'm not familiar with the setup, and I suspect that most of them are are, are different. I'm just trying to gauge what what it was like for you that very first time having to do what you were doing, knowing that it was to earn the money to pay back your friend. I hesitate to say, was there a part of you – that enjoyed it because you were getting the attention you craved as a teenager? Was you terrified through the hours or the time that you were in there? I, I know that you say you you kind of drowned your thoughts in alcohol, you know, to numb yourself to get through. What sort of feelings were the roller coaster feelings you went through? I, I know I'm asking you to think back to those, but being your very first time, some of those memories must stick with you even today. Oh, yes, they do. It was very up and down. It was, you know, when I'm looking for a customer. So keep in mind, this is the daytime. So daytime strip clubs aren't busy. So there's way more dancers than there are men. And my fear of rejection is like sky high. So you have to go up, start a conversation with these people, get them to like convince them to get a dance. And all I'm thinking is I have to make money. I have to make money. But I probably looked so nervous, you know, people were shooing me away. It it was difficult. It's a hustle. And so I felt ugly. I felt scared um, because a part of me was thinking, okay, what if they agree to a dance? I don't even know how to dance. What do I do? Like they sit in a chair. What am I doing? You know, and I'm there in like a bikini. Like, I, I don't know. But then as soon as someone paid for a few dances, And then they were pleased and I had money in my hand. I was like, damn, like, okay, I can do this. And seeing that money come in, I was like, you know, thinking of all the possibilities. What if I was to do this tomorrow and make some quick money? And so the feelings were, were so up and down in the, those first few, you know, the first little bit where it was like, this is wrong. I hate this. You know, a lot of the strippers are very mean, but then you get the money. So it was, you know, I felt on top of the world when I was getting paid and then very low the other times. The first time that I was on stage that first day, I actually, there's a thing called Pervert's perverts Row where they're right at the corner of the stage, the customers. And there were three men in Pervert's Row and they were my bosses from a job that I had as a teenager. And I had worked there for five years. So I knew them very well and instantly was like, Marky's a stripper. And then word got out that very day that I was a stripper, it caught on like wildfire. And then I just felt, okay, um, everyone knows this now, like I have to accept it. So my reputation was destroyed that very first day. What happened when your friend came to pick you up? What happened after that? So I got in the car. She put out her hand. I gave her the money and she didn't say a word. And she drove me back to her house and didn't say anything. Got out of the car, walked into the house. I followed. And she had, there was a man, there was two men there and they were drinking. They poured me a drink and they gave me a pill, not saying anything. And they said, take it. And she made sure I took it gave me another pill and made sure I swallowed it. And then the three, they were like, go upstairs, take off your clothes. And so the three of them came upstairs, essentially raped me and told me to go shower and sleep in the next room and that they'd see me in the morning. That was my kind of intro to this new world. How do you describe that new world? Dark, sad, the sex industry and that the 
it's just so, do you know what? I can't put a word to it, but it's only very broken people that are a part of it on both sides, the customers, the workers, the pimps. So of course, you know, now we've all figured out that she was my pimp and one of the men that was, was there with her that night was her pimp. So there's a hierarchy of pimps. So he was actually my pimp. I just didn't know about it. And so he had recruited her, made her a sex worker. And then after, I don't know how long had went by, trained her, manipulated her to recruit other girls. So they call her a bottom bitch in the hierarchy. So she works a little bit. So she she danced part-time, but her kind of main role was to manage me and make sure that I, I made them money. And so her job was to recruit other girls for him. And he had so many girls in different houses working under him and he'd collect all the money. So she just collected my money and handed it over to him. And this whole time, I just thought he was this guy that she had been hooking up with, you know, cause he'd come around here and there, they'd sleep together here and there. And so I just thought it was weird because they, she'd always want me to sleep with him and it was this weird dynamic, <laughs> but now I understand it, of course. Of course. But at the time you were 19 years old, you were vulnerable uh, and you were being manipulated and threatened uh, and you were doing things out of fear. How long did that go on for and and how did it develop? I mean, and when I ask that, I'm trying to get to, you know, at what point did you, if at any point, you accepted that that was your existence? And so I don't know if this is the right question. You kind of embraced it so that you were in control of it, at least to some extent, although you were being controlled, if that makes sense, or helped me make sense of of how you were stuck in this this situation. That makes total sense. I feel like you understand it. It, It's like you have to convince your mind to be okay with it for survival because or else you just drive yourself insane. So it was very quick where I learned to accept it. Timing is kind of off to me because I worked every day for 12 hours a day, didn't have a phone. And so I want to say that period of time was probably three or four months Um, There was a part of my TED talk that you probably don't know about, but I ended up um, in that world again down the line. Um, But with those traffickers, I was there for three, four months. And probably after two weeks, I said to myself and I, I looked in the mirror and I was like, okay, like this is your life. Accept it. Just be happy. And be kind to her because I felt just so naive I thought, wow, she's like really broken and she seems really hurt. I I need to be a friend to her because I don't think she has many friends. And so I, you know, a part of me stayed because I wanted to be a friend and like a light in the world for her. So I'd always try and make her laugh and everything. And, um, but yeah, I got used to the routine and yeah, it was hard. And what what was that routine? It was it going to the strip club every day, dancing, earning money, and then giving that money to her or to her pimp or your pimp? Yeah. So basically, they use you, they control you in any way that they can. So not only was I being sexually exploited by them, but I was their drug runner, their cleaner. So basically, she'd wake me up at I don't know, let's say like seven a.m. every morning. And she'd get me to make her breakfast. I'd make her breakfast, bring it up to her bed, and she'd eat it in bed. And then I'd take her dishes down and I'd do the dishes. And then I'd mop the floors. I cleaned up the air, like the downstairs of the townhouse. And then I'd have to shower, put my makeup on. She would pick an outfit for me. And then we would go deposit money. They'd get me to do like these money transfers at their bank um, for them. So I would do all that for them, get groceries, do their errands. But it was always a time crunch. It was like, okay, you have 20 minutes to grab groceries for the next few days. And I'd have to run and go do that and and then come back and they check the receipt so I wasn't stealing any money and do that. And then at noon when the strip club opened or 11 a.m., they would drop me off right then. And then they pick me up at like 1 a.m., And I would be there the whole day. 
and that was my life. But it was always different strip clubs. They were moving me around. That's what pimps do so they don't get caught. So every week it was kind of a new city, a new strip club. It was always changing. So we would be in motels a lot of the time. And how did you how did you overcome the feelings and the fear and everything that you were no doubt experiencing? I mean, did you turn to to drinking more, taking drugs? I mean, how did you get through your daily existence? I, I suspect to some extent because you'd accepted it or you'd embraced it in the sense that you were going to make it work for you, even though you were being controlled. How, how did you survive survive that time? A lot of drinking and drugs. So I would I would hide some money enough to buy two shots to start off my day. So I would save 20 bucks that I earned every day and I would keep it on me either in my bra or in some secret pouch that I had in in the bag. And I would go right to the bar, get two shots, and then I'd go find a customer that um, you just knew the customers inside the clubs that would be buying strippers drinks. So I'd find one, I'd ask them to buy me a drink and a shot. So I'd get a double and then I'd get another shot. And then some girls in the locker rooms would sell Coke. And um, I started doing Coke at work. I wasn't allowed to buy my pimp because they wanted a clean girl, but I needed to. So I, I got into that and I, that's how I kind of survived. I just was high and I kind of, in a way the strip club was an escape because I wasn't being controlled by her at home. I wasn't, doing chores and being degraded. And I mean, I was being degraded, (laughs) but not by her. And so it was kind of, I just used it as a chance to, I looked at it as I'm just having fun. I'm partying. And, and that's how I kind of coped. It's, it's so interesting. And thank you for being so candid because this can't be an easy thing to talk about, even though you've embraced who you are today, no doubt. And, and you're in control of, of your thinking and what you're prepared to share. Did, did there come a point where I'm not asking the question in joy? What's the word I'm looking for? Did there come a point where you, um, you got something out of this at all in any way, shape or form? I would say what I got out of it is learning how to talk to people. (laughs) I really got out of my shell. And I think, hey, that's, you know, something very positive that I got from it, because not having had the opportunity to meet so many people and have different conversations and be put in these really stressful, awkward, difficult situations, um, dangerous situations, I I wouldn't have grown so much as a person. And, you know, so I, I guess I thank them for that because that was, that was something awesome that is helping my life right now, for sure. Through adversity, something strong can, can come of it. You mentioned, you know, it was a dangerous, did, did you ever encounter any really dangerous situations where either your life was threatened or others life? I mean, I know that your life was threatened throughout the whole of this period, but I mean, a direct incident that, that made you even more scared? There was, and it's it's slightly minor, but to me it was scary. So we were at a club. So we, I barely had any off days. I mean, but I remember this one night, she was like, I'm going to pick you up um, from the club at 10 and we're going to go over to a club, like, like a dance club, right? And have some drinks because you've been making so much money. So I was like, great, cool. So we went to this club and she's like, come into the washroom. And we followed this girl into the washroom and she beat this girl up senseless. And she took her necklace and she turns to me and she says, that's what happens when you don't comply. And I just, you know, I took that as, cause she would always say, you are never leaving me for another man or I'm going to beat you up. And now I understand a man means a pimp. But to me, I was like, a man, why would I leave you for a man? (laughs) That didn't make sense to me. Um, But it all, it kind of made sense. Or I was like, comply. Okay. So it just made me think, do what she says, make more money than she wants me to make because then I'm in her good books. She's in a good mood. And um, so that I was like, okay, like her threats are real. You know, that was a, like a full threat. So anything else she says, I kind of believed more. 
right? So, and they showed me pictures, like her and her pimps showed me pictures of men that they had tied up and ripped their fingernails out and all of that stuff. So it, I was just always scared. How did it, how how long did it go on for Marky? And how, how was you able to escape what was happening to you? So that happened, I would say three or four months. And then I was confiding in a customer and we were in Niagara Falls at this time. So this was about two hours from Toronto and she had to go do a drug deal in Toronto. So I was alone, which never happened. She always had people checking in on me and I never know knew who. So I thought, okay, I'm alone. And this customer said, run out the door in five minutes. I'm going to be in my Audi and we're going to drive away. So I just ran out the front door and he drove me to a motel and bought me clothes and set me up there for a month. I tried to figure things out. He got me a cell phone and I started to contact people that I had known before, but a lot of people, everyone wrote me off as a whore and didn't want to be a part of my life. So I was alone. And so I contacted this guy, man, I should say, he was one of the men that I had slept with prior and he was double my age. So he was 40 and I was 19 and I knew he had a nice house and I contacted him and I said, Hey, like I'm in trouble right now. I need a place to stay until I can find a job and get on my feet. And so he said, okay, cool. Like I'll come pick you up right now. So I tell him everything that happened. I spill my heart out to him and you know, we start dating because I'm living at his house now. And within a week he says, you know, I'm not letting you live here for free. He's like, I've got a mortgage to pay. So what did he do? He drove me to our local strip club and he said, I know the manager. So we spoke with the manager and he's like, Marky wants to dance. And I said, no, no, like I do not want to dance. I said, I could be a cocktail server. And he said, no, like you owe me money for living, living with me. So you're going to dance. And he's like, I'm still going to love you. And so I was so starving for attention and I had already been dancing. So it was slightly comfortable to me and I didn't feel like I had another option. So I did it. I was like, okay, like he still, you know, he still likes me. He still loves me. So I worked and he would, he would pick me up, drive me home, take my money and then deposit into his bank account every night. So he kind of, kind of was pimping me out for about six months. I did that for him. And that was, it was harder because I had intimate feelings for him. And so what kind of ended it, I feel like my story is never ending, but the strip club owner, his buddy actually called the cops and I was working one night and they called me into the office and there was an undercover detective there. And he said, I'd like to ask you some questions tomorrow. And I saw it as an opportunity to get another customer. <laughs> I was like, okay, this guy is totally a trick. Like I'm, I'm totally going to go in like looking bomb and get this guy. So I was like, okay, cool. I'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs> I see the way you're looking at me in my bikini. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think there's anything that was like illegal. So I was like, okay, I'll come in. So the next morning I went in, gave them a statement and they didn't let me leave. And a social worker came in and she was saying, but what was the statement you gave them? What was the statement about, about the whole of the experience you've just shared with me? Yes. Yeah. They asked me right. about how I started working and I was telling, telling them about my bitch roommate <laughs> and they were asking me more questions. And I was like, Oh, this is weird. They kind of like know the way this works, but I didn't know that it was a thing. So I was kind of confused and I was like, maybe this was illegal. Like, Maybe this was a crime, but I still wasn't sold on it. it. I, in my mind, I decided to be a stripper and, you know, that was my decision because they make you, be they make you believe that it was your decision. So that's what the statement was about. And then a social worker came in and she asked me a series of questions and she's like, Hey, I want to take you to uh, like a sexual health clinic. 
And so she was like, I'm going to have a social worker come pick you up a week from now. So we set a date. And as that date rolls around the night before, I had no intentions of going with a social worker. I thought any, so pimps make you believe that police officers are bad. Everyone that's square is bad. And I was brainwashed into thinking like, like, Y'all, I don't know, like, you're not, I don't know. I felt like I was so hard and so gangster. I was just like, okay, like, no, I'm not dealing with any social worker. So I had no intention. So the night before I'm working at the strip club and the 40 year old man who I was quote unquote dating, his cousin came in. So I was like, oh, cool. Like, let's have, let's have a couple drinks. And he drugged my drink and I woke up the next morning naked in on the floor of his apartment. He was in the shower and I woke up to the social worker calling me and I was like, okay, I'll be down in like two seconds. So I called a taxi, came over. And then that social worker and I, um, she was great. I actually, she's one of like my closest friends now. And this was like 10 years ago. So she came and took me to my doctor's appointment, had lunch with me. And she was straight up. She was like, you know, you're going to be ugly, addicted to heroin in a matter of like months. She's like, you're so stupid. She's like, you're getting out of the game. Like you're getting out of it. And she's like, and I'm going to help you with it. So I was like, okay, thank you. So I took her help. She took me to a safe house. Um, The safe house only had funding for a few days. So after a few days, I went right back to the guy But in the safe house, I had met a girl who was also pimped out for a very long time. And her and I became so close. Like, it was like, you know, you meet someone that is so connected to your soul. And you're like, I feel like you are just like my twin. Like, you're connected to me on this different level. That's who she was to me. And she says, you know, we can do this all on our own. Like, break up with this guy. And let's work and let's travel and let's make money and keep it and do whatever we want to do. And so I was like convinced. I'm like, yep, let's do this. So I broke up with the guy. We went to LA with a sugar daddy. Um, this man who lived downtown LA, he flew us down and he paid us for our services while we were down there. And we also, um, started working for like a high class escort agency down there. And while we were working, a man had paid us to go on a cruise with him. So we went on a cruise to Mexico and were flagged. And so when we were trying to leave the cruise ship, they took us into custody and then we ended up going to jail for eight and a half weeks. Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, wow. What yeah. what were you charged with? What were you locked up for? So it was crazy because we weren't charged. We weren't charged with anything. So initially they were saying, you've stayed in the States way too long and you are working because my girlfriend had receipts from the agency. And they said, so you're illegally working in the States. You're a sex worker. <laughs> and then my girlfriend at the time, she was saying, she wanted to stay in the States. So she claimed asylum. She she was thinking, if I claim asylum, I'll be able to live here. So she claims asylum. So they're like, these, these girls are so messed up. And they took us in. We were booked at LA, downtown LA, that jail. And then they took us over to Orange County. And we were just awaiting to see to go to trial or just see a judge. I, we hadn't spoken to anyone. We didn't understand why we were being held. So don't have any charges, but we were deported eight and a half weeks later. And you'd think that that would be a wake up call. Like during my time, I was like, I'm going to be square now and I'm going to go to school and I'm going to get my life in order. But it is so hard to just stop and, you know, get a part-time job and, you know, earn minimum wage and get out of that life and so we continued working. We we were no longer dancing. We just decided to do escorting. And we did that for a long, long time. And, you know, it all ended. It all kind of ended when she was sleeping with the guy I was dating. And I was like, okay, that, that's the final straw. So I called my dad 
And I asked him if I could come home, just don't ask me any questions. And he was okay with that. And he just wanted me back. And so I came back, I went to college. I kept a couple of customers on the side (laughs) for a long time until just a few years ago. But over time, I, that's when I kind of started my healing journey and stopped, stopped working in the trade. If I'm honest, I'm torn between the horrible experience that started all this, but where you ended. And I know it's fair to say that maybe you would have led a completely different life had you not met that, that girl uh, behind the bar at the place you were working, who then gave you that bag with the stripper's kit, if you like. Did you walk away from it yourself or were you rescued from it by becoming more aware of the fact that you were manipulated and controlled by deviant pimps, dangerous men and women who'd taken control of a vulnerable teenager who was only seeking friendship and acceptance. And at what point did you start to believe that you were a victim of human trafficking? Once I understood that I was being human trafficked, so it was from the social workers, they told me, they said, look up what a pimp is. And I Googled it and I was shocked. I mean, my jaw hit the floor. There is actually a pimp handbook and it is like the 50, oh, the 52 laws of the game, something like that. And it tells you everything on how to be a pimp. And so I started to read that and I was like, everything they did, it was like a play by play of what had happened to me and wh- how they manipulated me. And so when I realized that it was easier for me to start healing and to be like, and come to terms with it and kind of put the past in the past, but it wasn't that easy. It was like, okay, I'm not crazy. Uh, my feelings are valid. This is a, a real thing. This is a crime. This wasn't actually my decision. I was being coerced and manipulated into it, but still wrapping my head around that to this day, it it still likes to play with me. So I was able to move on quicker but it was still very difficult. I still had that sense of, okay, but now that I'm not being human trafficked, like, let's just do it on my own. Like, who cares about, you know, being in the sex industry? Like, you know, that's a thing. So. <laughs> and was that, was that a defining moment? And help me understand that just, just in the same way that you said you couldn't quite understand it. But so at the beginning, it was this tormentor and people forcing you to do things. And then you took control of your own life to some extent, a life that you'd been forced into, coerced into. But then you took control and continued to work in the sex industry. Would you say that that was a marquee choice or a scar, a leftover from being forced into this situation? And you you knew no other way. There was no other way out for you to go and find a nine to five job if, you know, and I don't question the sex industry good for anybody who can earn money using their looks, their body or their whatever it is. Where do you draw the line? It was it was a scar for sure. Take anybody working in the sex industry and you're showing me someone that has been exploited in some way or hurt in some way at some point of their life. You know, healthy people, they don't choose to do this. They don't choose to be in the industry. And so for me, I think it was the healthiest decision that I knew how to make at the time. I thought it was, I really thought that it was me taking my power back and, and that it was a good choice, but it was, it's just, it destructs you. It destroys you so much. Like, because it feels empowering. Okay, I guess this is the way you can look at it is that it feels so empowering to get that money to be praised for your looks and oh, I'll pay you $1,000 to lick your feet for an hour. It's like, okay, sure. You know, it feels good. And not the actual like act of getting your feet licked, but <laughs> the money part. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was bad timing. But um, it feels really good. But 
once you stop, I think a lot of people stay in the industry because of that. But it's like, you know, that saying you have to feel to heal. It's like, as soon as you stop and you're faced with all the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment and the trust issues that you have and, you know, everything that you're left with, you know, the emotional scars, the physical scars, that's when the pain really starts to happen. So people want to avoid that at all costs. And you're not feeling that when you're drowning yourself in alcohol. And when you're on drugs, you're like, no, this is great. I'm living the high life. You know, I look good, feel good. But as soon as you start to feel it and, and turn away from that lifestyle, like I, I thought, why am I ending this? Like now I feel like shit. And I wasn't feeling this shitty when I was in the trade. And now it's like, Oh, I have all this work to do. So yeah. (laughs) What changed for you, Marky? You said that, you know, your friend, girlfriend started sleeping with your partner. So you went back to dad. He asked no questions. You kept a few punters on the side, but that came to an end. When did it end for you? How long ago? And what did you do from that moment on? So it truly ended about four years ago now um, when I met now I'm separated from him, um, but I met a man and I thought, okay, this, this guy is the keeper and I cannot risk this relationship if I'm going to be sleeping with other men for money. And so I decided to end it there. And I thought, I never felt that I truly fit into that lifestyle. And I always had that part of me, that old part of me that was like, I liked being a good girl back then. I liked, you know, living a normal life. And I wasn't, I wasn't raised to do this. So it always felt wrong to me. And I fought it and I fought it and I fought it. And then it finally came to a point where I was like, no, this isn't me. Like I had this, this moment when I was in the motel after I had escaped the first set of pimps and I looked like I looked at myself in the mirror and I was like, what are you doing? Like I started like bawling my eyes out and I was like, what are you doing? Like, this is not you. And so that was like a very clear moment that I'll never forget. You were talking about, you met a man who changed your way of thinking. And because no doubt there were deep emotional feelings, intimate feelings between you and him you were prepared to give up the life that you were forced into and then adopted as a way of life. And and I say that hesitantly when I say adopted as a way of life, I'm not forgetting where it all started. And then your life changed. You stopped four years ago from being involved in the sex industry. What did you do? So I tried so many different things that I could I don't know. I read books on healing. I, I got my yoga teacher training. So I became a yoga teacher and started kind of like a spiritual journey. You know, I would exercise. So I did all the things, you know, go to counseling. I did all the things that you would Google to do when you're trying to get past something so traumatic. And I was, I was feeling those things were so surface and none of those were getting to the root of the pain. You know, they, they were mild cover-ups and, and nothing was really hurting like the aching in my soul. And so this guy, he, he told me to forgive the people that I was like angry at. And I was mad at him at first for suggesting it um, because I thought you have no idea the pain that I'm going through. So something so like, floofy as forgiving. I did take offense to that (laughs) at first, but I tried it and he walked me through it and kind of just speaking out loud, saying you forgive the person out loud and feeling it and like actually sitting in those emotions. So what I, I did first was I forgave my traffickers and then I forgave, I wrote a list of all the people that I could remember that were customers because I was more hurt and damaged by the men, the married men that were buying me, um, than I was of my traffickers. And I think why (laughs) I think it was easier for me um, to wrap my head around why the traffickers did what they did. I think I, I could understand that 
the girl who trafficked me was a victim herself. And I knew I was headed down that road. You know, in five years, I would have been her. I was hard. I was rude. I was arrogant. I was, I I turned into this person that she was. And I can just easily see how, how her life kind of came to be about. And I just thought, you know, the other pimps, the, you know, they were probably in the game, in the streets. I think like, I think their parents were pimps and I could just wrap my head around why they did this. And it wasn't, it had nothing to do with me. It it had everything to do with themselves and how hurt and damaged their own life was. So that was easy. But knowing that there's the men are deceivers, I think it's because now I have to go in my life and well, I don't have to, but I would like to find a man. I would like to have a family and seeing all those families really be destroyed by one night of partying or men who just want their side, you know, sugar baby. And that inside my mind was like, my life will never be the same because I'm never going to be able to trust a man again. And so I hated men. Like I was like Googling how to become a lesbian. Like I, <laughs> I really <laughs> didn't want, you know, for so long, I was like, I am never going to be with another man. And so that really affected my relationship with him in the beginning. And so when I forgave the men that had bought me, it really just released the hatred. It released everything that I was clinging on to. And I just, I felt free and I was like, okay, I'm doing this as a lifestyle. So every day I would forgive about two people for it to like really be effective. And I just made my way down the list. And for months and months, I just, you know, forgave everyone that I could. And it is part of, you know, maybe it's not a daily thing anymore, but when things pop up in my mind, I forgive the people because when people hurt you, it has nothing to do with you, you know? So when you kind of understand that, I think it's easier for you to move forward in your own life. Where, where are you in your head at the moment? I mean, you, you've articulated how you've gone through this process of, of healing by forgiving and, and you've gone through that checklist and you, you, you've come to terms with why you like or don't like certain people who you can and can't trust. Are you still healing or are you wholesome, if you like? Have you reached that place where maybe you've had the therapy you've needed, either self-therapy or external therapy, or you just have a good network of friends around you who kind of understand both sides of who you was, who you became, and who you are today, which is going to be my next question. But where are you psychologically, mentally? I would love to say that I'm wholesome now. (laughs) I think I am... I am in a really good place and probably I know the best place that I have ever been in. Um, so I feel great. I have recently separated from my husband a couple weeks ago. And so sorry to hear that. Thank you. And so that relationship set me back um, with trust. And so I felt that I was in a very, very good spot. And then now I'm kind of like, okay, do some more work (laughs) because now I have to kind of get through what happened in the marriage and move along. But, but I I feel, I feel healthy. So I do feel good. Yeah. And what are you doing these days then? If you're not in the sex industry anymore, what, what are you doing? What, what does the future hold? It's exciting to think about the future. I, I'm not too sure. I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to grow my business. I like to inspire women. I have a little Instagram account and I, I have a lot of people that I connect with on there that like to hear. I, I, I have a positive side to me and um, I like to inspire others. So at first, when I was getting through getting over the sex trafficking, I thought my mission is to talk about sex trafficking. And after I did that for so long, I realized, you know what, that isn't my mission. I think my mission is just more to inspire others in other ways. So take what I learned from it and kind of help heal people in other ways in life without necessarily having to talk about trauma and all of that kind of thing. So I'm not sure where the future 
is going. Um, but I hope it involves a lot of connection with people and just happiness. That's all I really want is just to stay happy. And we can find that in the smallest things. A couple of things here. The first thing is, is there a danger that you could fall back into that old marquee life? Or are you completely, completely distanced from it now enough where you're safe from that, that not I say that industry, but from that life that was eating away to some extent? I'm away from it now. I will not lie to you. And when I am struggling financially from time to time, the thought comes in my mind, but it's not a serious thought. It's like, it's more like, oh, I have to get my brakes on my car done. And then I think I could have one customer for one hour and get this paid for. I would never actually do that. But what stops you? What's what stops you now, given that it could be such an easy way of making that money to pay what you need to? What what stops you, somebody who has experience? I don't want to feel dirty. I don't want to feel, you know, customers, they own you for that hour. And it, it it's such a degrading feeling. And even though, yes, it might be a certain period of time, a short period of time, but the long-term effects of that, it would psychologically, I don't know how easy that would be for me to heal again if, if I dabble back into that. So no, I'm, I'm way better than that. And I definitely respect myself enough to let a man think that they can pay to have me. So that's really good to hear. All through our conversation, I, I don't know why, but I keep thinking about the marquee before you met that girl, before you met her in that workplace that turned into the journey you then went on, the marquee that wasn't confident, that was socially awkward, as you described it, that didn't have any friends. Um, and there must be lots of young girls out there who who are going through the same experience and they become vulnerable and then open to the kind of exploitation that you experienced. What, what do you think of that that young Marky, that 16-year-old Marky, who was very different from the Marky? I mean, I'm sure there's a little bit of her still inside you. There always will be because it's those memories that sometimes remind you of the person you, you were, uh, are. What do you think of, of that 16, 17, 18-year-old Marky now who, who was going to church, or at least up until that point she was going to church and she had different values? And although life was awkward by wanting to be accepted and by you know agreeing to do things that you would not otherwise have, have done, and there must be lots of girls and boys out there in that same position, Marky, what would you say now to those or to your little self back then? Oh, Wow. I would say to reach out to somebody with what you're going through, because I had been very sad and kind of, you know, suicidal since I was like nine years old. And I never told anybody and I never, you know, talked to my parents about anything that I was going through. And since I didn't have communication with somebody, it led me to be vulnerable and it led me to not tell people the red flags that was happening with my trafficker. So when you're not on a level with someone that you can trust, you are susceptible to, to exploitation, to danger, to so many things. So I would just, you know, advise people to connect with, with someone that they can trust, whether it's a teacher or parent or sibling um, so that people can look after you you know, because I needed that. I wasn't a strong person. You know, teenagers, youth, you know, they have so many vulnerabilities. Like they they need an adult. They need someone to, to kind of watch them, <laughs> if you will. My last question, when you look in the mirror today, what do you see? Who do you see? Oh, I see a strong, badass woman <laughs> who is goofy and um I'm proud of her yeah Marky thank you so much for being so candid and honest and open and, and clear about who you are and who you've become I really do appreciate you sharing your story is there anything else that you want to share with me or talk about that we've not 
talked about? Um, I would say that I would have never been human trafficked. Well, I say this now, but if I had known what human trafficking is. So if you have a daughter, I say, and a son or a son, um, educate them on human trafficking, you know, show them this podcast, show them videos, or just, just communicate with those around you because you never know who's vulnerable and just love people, you know, spread kindness. Thanks for listening to this episode and please subscribe to this podcast. Share us with your friends and follow us on social media. It'd be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support or advertise on this show, please get in touch. And if you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.